Before we begin today, I just wanted to acknowledge that Full Spirals is made possible through the generous support of our patrons. A special thanks to Anonymous, Bree, and Kelly E. for being our latest Patreon sponsors. And I'm so grateful to all of you for subscribing and continuing to support the vital work of making creativity a force of healing and growing in our world. And for helping to give healing a voice. Do you want to help with this vital work? Click the Patreon tab in the show notes and become a spinner today. Welcome to a very special Project I'm Speaking episode of Bull Spirals. Project I'm Speaking episodes are a series of interviews conducted with the intention of featuring brave and talented women who agreed to speak up about their creative process, about how they found their unique voices, and how they intend to use those gorgeous voices in the world now. Because we need this. All of us need this right now, more than ever. So enjoy this time and this unique voice while you take in this episode of Project I'm Speaking. I'm Stacey Parrish. to do something, it can't long be denied. You know, what's the expression? Three things cannot long be hidden. The sun, the moon, and the truth. Well, the truth of today's guest is that she was born to be a director. She's the very essence of what Full Spirals is all about, and she's a local icon. Talking with her brought me back to how freaking normal it is as a creative to feel as though you're falling short. You know, that micro focus that we place on the one thing that went wrong when 99 things went right. Susan Rabadou is a theater artist, director, producer, and actor. She's made art her life and has used it to make real changes in people's lives. And she's a true champion for the healing power of the creative process. For the past 21 years, she's been a professor of theater arts and communications at UWO Fox Cities. She teaches all theater classes and directs all of the campus productions there as well. Her undergraduate degree is from UW-Stevens Point in acting. Her Master of Fine Arts is in directing from Mankato State University, Minnesota. Go Mavs! And she's trained in frantic assembly devising and previously taught at Moorhead State University. She's directing her 100th show this season at UW-Fox, and I couldn't be happier to bring her wisdom on the creative process to you. Well, hello, Susan. Well, hello. Thank you so much <laughs> for having me. It's I'm excited. So, so fun to have you mm-hmm. here um, in my home. Yes. I, have, I haven't done an interview in my home for quite a while. So this is... It's lovely because it shows a little bit of who you are, your art, and how you have things arranged. It gives me a little insight to who you are as well. Mm, inspiration, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you are like the very essence of what Full Spirals is. Because you've made art your life, and you've used it to make real changes in people's lives. You're a champion for creativity. Well, thank you for saying that. I hope I'm half of that. Um, <laughs> when I think of the expression, think globally, act locally, mm-hmm. I think of your work. Oh, thank you. 
So I'm really excited to kind of dive in. (laughs) Uh, You ready? Yes, absolutely. All right, cool. So I always do a little bit of a getting to know you, Mm -hmm. a la James Lipton. Okay. So Susan. Yes. Tell me about your childhood. (laughs) No, no. Uh, Like, where were you born? Where did you grow up? That kind of stuff. Sure, sure. I was born in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and I was... uh, born to a woman who was having an affair. She had left her husband and met the biological father and uh, then went back to her husband and couldn't take the baby with her. And so I'm adopted. And my parents, my mother had a quarter, like not my biological mother, but my mother for all intents and purposes, she had a quarter of an ovary and was told she would never conceive. And so they waited for nine years through a Catholic agency. And at year nine, they called them and said, we have a baby boy for you, but you did not pay your church dues. So you can't have him. So get your church dues up, paid up so that you can get the next child that comes. And then four years later was the next time their phone rang and their phone rang like on a Thursday and they had to go pick up this new baby who I was sick. I had a sebaceous cyst under my arm. I was a hot mess. Um, (laughs) And Yes. So I was adopted. So I've never looked like anybody and I always wanted to look like someone. Hmm. Yeah. So that was my childhood. And I was born, I was adopted into the family that uh, my mother was probably the world's best mother. And she, you know, like how some people aspire to be an artist or aspire to be a garbage collector or aspire to be something. She aspired to be a mother. She wanted Mm. to be a mother and she was that great mother that, um, you know, cut, the sandwiches into little shapes at holidays and she just loved being a mom and then eventually they had a biological child as well because that often happens when you bring a baby into Mm -hmm. the relationship and so I have a brother as well wow Mm -hmm. how does that um do you believe or do you see that as coloring your the work that you do I don't um in college I had a college roommate who was adopted as well and so Mm -hmm. we found out that out in common. We had that in common. And then she wanted to find her biological parents. Mm -hmm. And the state of Wisconsin in the 80s had this program where you could send a letter. And if you send a letter and your biological parents send a letter, they would exchange your letters for you. Mm -hmm. And so I went down, I sat down to write my letter. And the only thing I could hope was that either he or she were a car dealer. I didn't have a car. I really wanted a car. (laughs) So I I hope that one of them was a car dealer. And I thought that's a really shitty way to try to get your parents. Like that's a stupid reason to like seek your parents out. So I never, I never found them and that's okay. So I think I'm just who I am and I didn't, I don't fit within my regular family. I am the, the round hole in the square peg. Mm -hmm. So I don't fit in the family that I was adopted into, but they love me and I love them. So nice. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's talk about your creative journey. Sure. Um, well, what were you taught about imagination and creativity? You know, intuition when you were a kid. Oh, I don't think I was at all. I don't Mm. think that I had any kind of outlet. I was always that creative kid that was always singing around the house and I loved make believe and you know how little kids have ideas of what they want to be. They want to be a veterinarian and an astronaut and I ever only wanted to be a performer. I never changed. Like when you, if you asked me if I was three, I was going to be a performer. If you asked me now at 56, I want to be a performer, right? I always wanted that theatrical life. That's and that so never interesting. changed. Yeah. 
I kind of felt that same way, but I um, wasn't willing to admit it until Mm -hmm. I was, I don't know, 51. Yeah. Maybe. It's a hard journey. You know, like I have students that come in and I say, if your heart will allow you to do anything else, do that other thing. Mm. And then do the creative thing on the side. Like there's space for everything, but it's a hard journey. So how did you get involved in theater? How did that creative journey start? Oh gosh, I've, again, I think I was six when I did my first show, you know, I think it was something about a cookie. I was a cookie. (laughs) It was like when the cookie crumbles and I was like one of the cookies, I was very excited. Um, And then I just always did it. I, when I went into college, I was not going to do it. I was going to be a math teacher and then an English teacher. And then I just took one theater class. And then all of a sudden I was a theater minor. And then I was a theater major. And I had this really great professor at UW-Stevens Point. And he, um, my parents were not supportive, right? You can't make a living Mm -hmm. in theater. Mm -hmm. This isn't what we want for you. Um, And they came to see a show and my dad said some pretty horrible things about how he wishes I was in a different career. And Mm. but that professor took time to write a beautiful letter that I still have today that basically said, your daughter is very good at this. And even if she wasn't, it makes her happy. Mm. So if you want to be part of her life, you should get on, get on the train. And they did. And yeah. So, yeah. So from undergraduate, I went into Lock Sheldrake. It was a theater camp. And all of a sudden, I was a director, right? So I trained as an actor, mm-hmm. but I was always bossy. I always had an opinion <laughs> when somebody asked the director a question and the director said, oh, I don't know that. And I'm like, well, I do. Ask me. I she know what that the answer is. <laughs> the answer is, which is not a good trait for like a stage manager or an actor. I'm like, I know. I know. Ask me. Right. And then I started doing directing and I was like, oh, this is... Right. I, I thought I knew what I wanted, but I was very, very good at directing. Mm. Were you an outlier in your family? Well, you said that, but mm-hmm. as a, um, as an outspoken, not outspoken, I don't want to say outspoken woman, but like a woman who freaking knew. Yeah, absolutely. And mm-hmm. still today, right? My family and I are very different politically. We're very different in our activism. We're very different mm-hmm. and, and that's okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you were, you were about to say something else about your directing. Oh, and so I, I just, I can see things. So, um, when I'm directing, if something isn't going well, I can close my eyes and I can see what it should look like. Mm. And I can, I have the ability to then communicate that to the performers. And so I was doing that in New York, um, still working on the side as a singer and a little cabaret. And I, um, actually got a contract that brought me back to Appleton, which is like seven miles from my home. Uh, there used to be an equity theater called classic arts Mm. and, I auditioned in Wisconsin. They didn't want me. I auditioned in New York and they thought I was the best thing since sliced bread. So they brought me back on a contract and then a local community theater, Attic Theater, was hiring directors. And I got hired on Mm -hmm. with like only my little tiny resume at New York. And that was like 89 or 90. And all of a sudden I was one of the resident directors. I remember I came in and I think I must've been like 24. I was going to say, you must've just been a young yeah, pup. Yeah, I was 24 and I, they, <laughs> I always used S Rabidou. I never designated my gender and I think they thought I was a man. Mm-hmm. And I think that they had transposed my, no, I was 24 and they thought I was 42. And so I show up for the first production meeting and they're like, who are you? And I'm like, well, I'm the director and I'm all ready for the meeting. And they were like, oh no, that can't be right. We, oh, man. you know, and, but it worked 
my first project for them was great and they liked what I did and they hired me a lot. So I worked like sometimes I did five shows a season for them in the early nineties. I am so struck by your tenacity and your courage at that age that you were just like, yeah, this is what I do. This is how I do it. I've showed up next. Yeah. But I don't think that I, I might've been, I might've appeared tenacious. I didn't, I didn't feel that I was an artist till much later in my career. Mm. You know, I always, and still, I think we fight with the idea um, of that sort of imposter sy- syndrome, oh, like, God. like, um, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm coming up on my, this is the show I'm in right now is my 100th show I'm directing. And I still, if you ask me, I don't look back a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm always kind of moving forward into the next thing. I am never happy with a product. I always see the cracks that I could have filled differently. Even at the end? Even at the end. Yeah. I'm happy. Like, I'm happy for the experience. I'm happy for the process. I'm happy, mainly happy with the product, but I'm never 100% happy ever. So it's very hard for me to watch my own shows because I was like, oh, I could have directed that a little differently or I could have, I missed that moment. And, oh, if I had changed the timing on that another, you know, half second, oh, it would have hit better. So I'm never, I'm never completely satisfied. Oh, that's so relatable. Artists, are you listening? Are you you hearing this? (laughs) 100 shows in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, I'm so struck is the only word that I can think of by the universality of that sentiment that you just, Absolutely. Like, when is it done? Yeah. It's never done. Nope. But it's time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's time to let it go. It is. And it's time to, you and I were talking before we started the recording mm-hmm. and we talked about that there perhaps is a kernel that doesn't go the way you want it to. And that one kernel is what we obsess about opposed to the 999 things we got right. Mm-hmm. So my job, I have a little post-it note that goes on my calendar and every day it says, I am talented and I can find joy in this process. And I try to focus on those 999 things and make my little inner critic shut up about the one thing. So you have a post-it. Say that again. You have a post-it. I have a post-it that says, I am talented. And mm-hmm. on the back side of it, it says, I, I, am, I can find joy in every situation. I think I, for a long time, I lost my joy. Mm-hmm. You know, like the pandemic was hard. Mm-hmm. Living in this environment as a woman is hard. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if you're not finding it hard... You're not paying attention. Right, it's, right. It's, what are you on? Yeah. <laughs> and I want some of it. Give it some of it to me because Could it's we really hard. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so I think that I have to stop looking at that one thing and look at those 999 things. Um, how the actor processes something is important to me. It's okay if I don't feel great at the end, but boy, I better have created an environment where my artists feel great at the end. Mm. And I think that that is, it's hard to manage other people's process, Yeah, you know, to set up an environment that allows people to succeed Wow, and to be allowed to push them in directions that they perhaps think they're at capacity or I'm I'm to ask the right kind of questions to help them discover that they have a greater talent than they think they do. Mm. So I think that's the director's job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you teach a creative process course at the university. Uh, It's UW Oshkosh Fox cities now. Okay. 
So can you teach someone to be creative? I can teach someone to get out of the way of their own creativity. The kind of overall umbrella of the class is fail big. We as a society are so afraid of failing that we never get to be creative anymore. I mean, if you ask a five-year-old who can sing, who can dance, who can paint, they all raise their hands. Right. I can. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. If you ask a college kid who can sing, who can dance, who can paint, nobody raises their hand. Mm. And so what I try to do is provide a pathway where they can get onto the path and try. And it can be terrible. It can be crap, but they have to do it every day. Mm. And by the end, hopefully, you know, not everything is a success story, but hopefully at the end they go, I can add this creativity into my actual life and it brings them some sort of pleasure or it gets some sort of gook out of their brains. Yeah. You know, like nobody wins all the time. And if they say they do, they're lying. Yeah. They're selling you something. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's how do you succeed? How do you fail big? And then, I mean, you must have the same thing, right? Some of my greatest failures are where I grew the most, mm-hmm. are where I learned the most. Absolutely. You know, I think I have a business card that says, it was like a few shows ago that says, um, director, uh, 98 great shows and two terrible shows. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that people always ask you when you go into an interview or anybody, well, what are the two terrible shows? You're like, well, I'm not going to tell you the show, but I'm going to tell you why yeah. I didn't manage the process properly. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't get to where we needed to be. Yeah. And those are the things that I'm like, oh, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah. I'm going to do that differently. Yeah. And that's where growth occurs in those ugly failure moments. Yeah. Such a bummer that growth has to hurt. It does. <laughs> Yeah. But it's but it's beautiful too, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's both and. And if you don't have it right, like people always those are those questions like, what would you go back and change in your life? You know, I've had some crap in my life. I would not go back and change it right. because where I am in this moment is so lovely. And if you take that piece out, that building block piece that was ugly or not perfect, do I still get to be who I am today? Mm-hmm. And I really like who I am today. Yeah. So I'll take the ugly to get to the good. Yeah. yeah. I love that you are providing that platform for people to, yeah, for people to just take risks and try. Yeah, I think fail big and dream bigger, right? Nice. Yeah. That's sort of like, great. This one didn't work out. Okay. How are you going to do it differently? And what do you take away? And, and, and to find, to find something in that quote unquote failure that is still wonderful, right? That, okay, so I was trying to do this and it didn't work out, but this piece, this little tiny thing, I'm going to take that idea and now try something else. And that, that's that little kid mentality where you fall off your bike and you keep getting back on, mm-hmm. right? If we all allow a single failure to stop the process, we don't get to be who we're going to be. I'm taking a note right now. <laughs> literally taking a note. Well, yeah, That's I what... take the same notes. That's why I have a post-it note because I can say it, but can I always remember it and internalize it? Well, maybe not always. Yeah. yeah. Cause that's literally what we were talking about. Like you said beforehand, like yeah. I had this really scary, terrifying, not great inner experience. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, I'm, I'm excluding myself from ever trying again. Yeah. And I, do, I was going to say, do you think it's because artists are more tenderhearted? Or is it a human experience? It's a human experience. I really hate that idea that artists are somehow damaged and that we can't produce art unless we're damaged somehow. Mm -hmm. That's a load of cock, right? Like, no, that's not true. There are lots of artists that are good human beings and have had Mm -hmm. good life experiences. I don't have to be damaged to create art. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I had a question. Do you ever consider a show done? But I think that you answered that already. I don't know. <laughs> if you had, if you gave me years to work on a show, it wouldn't be done. But I keep a very tight time limit, right? 21 rehearsals for a straight show, 23 for a musical, and it's ready to go. And for me, it has to be ready to go three rehearsals before it's ready to go, because that's where you leave your actors and start to focus on all of the technical elements. So it's got to be, they have to feel good about it three rehearsals before you're done. That's my theory. Mm -hmm. Like, you have to bring your actors along, right? I think when I direct, I have, I put a, I'm working on a show now for next fall called Bridges of Madison County. I just had COVID. I spent 10 hours during COVID and little half an hour increments getting ready for the blocking for that show where you tell the actors to go. Mm-hmm. That's my job. My, my job is all of the paperwork before the actors ever get in the room, ever get cast, all of that. And then I take the talent that I get to cast. And then that is like the, it's like the paint by numbers. It's, it's the shape of the piece, but the actors bring the color, the Mm -hmm. actors bring the shading, the actors bring how everything comes together. And I think a good director takes all of that input of extra artist talent, artistic talent, and you make a better product, Mm. right? If I only use my own vision, the product would be much less than it is when you can include all the artists in the room. Yeah, it's like the synergy. Yeah. The synergy of the relationship. Mm -hmm. That's such a cool analogy. Sort of like you're the paintbrush and they're the paint. I love that. Yeah. But I think sometimes, like, I really thought that that paint was going to be red and the performer I have is pink. And in the end, it's what what the piece needed, Mm. right? In the end, what that actor brings to the table, it gives us a new jumping off point. Yeah, it's really similar to the way you just described life or or learning, right? Like things are going to happen that you're not going to plan for. And that's precisely where the juice is. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. So I talk a lot about story Mm -hmm. here on the podcast. What makes a compelling story to you? What makes a compelling story to me? Um, Truth. There has to be a sense of verisimilitude, um, which is this idea that things are as they appear and that there's a greater truth and that by sharing that truth, it moves the audience, right? Acting is not something you do alone, right? If you are a great actor in your shower and you tell a great story in your shower, great. I'm glad that brought you pleasure. That isn't what theater is about. Theater is about a relationship between the performers and the audience and this energy that is passed back and forth. And that's what's as that's what the story is, right? You have to, you have to communicate to that story to the audience and the audience has to be able to relate that story and find a greater truth in themselves. Mm. Right. So, so when you read a script, that's what you're looking for. Yes. And, and what I look for in a story has changed through the years. I don't need a story that's predominantly about Caucasian men anymore. I mean, like 12 angry men. Who needs to do that story anymore? Mm-hmm. Now they've changed it to 12 angry jurors or something. There's stories that need to be told that haven't been told. Mm. And those are the stories we as artists should be telling. Nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you recall one moment where the arts changed everything? Absolutely. I can recall a thousand moments where the <laughs> arts have changed everything. I think that for some reason, some of the people who are drawn to the arts have a hole that they need to fill. Mm. And I give them the putty to fill that hole. Mm. And 
there are so many students that feel that they don't belong or so many actors or so many technicians that don't think they have a home and theater provides that home for them. Mm. Yeah. So I think there's so many moments where lives are, lives are changed because of art. hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and we talked earlier about um, Elizabeth Gilbert's work and the reason I always cite her is that she talks about how this, you know, the, the creative experience is a human experience mm-hmm. and, and we're taught when we're younger, we're taught really early whether or not that's ours. Mm-hmm like in the family, she's the creative one. He's the creative one. You are not the creative mm-hmm. one. Therefore you do not deserve to be creating anything. Yes. Don't you dare yep. almost don't you dare, mm-hmm. you know, we're sort of exiled. So I love that you create those opportunities for people. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm all about like, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean though, right? Like, like who yeah. cares? Yeah. Just right. Create I, just to create. It yeah. doesn't even matter like whether you land on anything. Exactly. Because if you don't land on something in this time, the next time you might, right? And they, I think everyone equates it to Michael Jordan, right? Who talks about mm. how many baskets he missed, but we don't remember those misses. We remember all the times he made that winning shot. And that's what the arts are as well, right? Nobody sees us in our rooms as we try to get all the pieces together. They just see this finished product. Yes. But that process, that process is the important piece. Yes. And can we just demystify the arts? Like you said, it's just, it's just a process. It is. Yeah. I I think it feels magical to the people in it, but it isn't magic, right? It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of (laughs) preparation. It's a lot of trying something and like, oh, can you give me something else? Can I try something different there? Mm -hmm. The timing isn't right on that. I mean, it's, it's everything. Yeah. And the vulnerability that's necessary. Yeah, it is hard. It is hard because... We, our brains are geared to pick up the stuff that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And we, yeah. we don't celebrate the pieces that work. We have to celebrate those pieces that work. Yeah. And if there were no pieces that worked, we would never notice the piece that wasn't working, right? Because right. it doesn't somehow fit. So you need to celebrate. Right. You need to find joy in the stuff you're doing well. Yeah. It's that negativity bias thing where, where I'm at is not quite good enough. So I really need to, yeah, just uh, taking time to celebrate what already happened Mm -hmm. just for a second before moving on to the next thing. Yeah. And that's something I struggle with, right? So a director's job is typically done when the actor's get on stage like get in front of another audience, right? Because who can, unless something goes horribly wrong or there's a safety issue, right? You don't get a whole lot of notes from me when you are performing because you just laid your soul bare to the audience Mm -hmm. and who could take that kind of like, well, could you lay your soul a little more bare (laughs) or could you make that soul a little taller? Right. You can't do that to a performer. So then I sit in the dark and go, Oh, if I was just a little bit better, I mm-hmm. could have gotten them to where I needed them to be through rehearsals before we got the deck. Mm-hmm. So it just takes so much guts. Like I don't, I don't even want to direct my hair <laughs> a lot of times. Like, no, thank you. Right. Yeah. I'm not even, not even to dry it today. <laughs> I think though that it is what I was meant to do. Right. Mm-hmm. I think I can do it and I, I'm good at it. I can, I'm an important in my life when I can say I'm really good at it mm-hmm. and I'm an artist and this is my art. Yeah. And so that's a cool place to be. That is a cool place mm-hmm. to be. Mm-hmm. Kind of feels like a good place to stop. Great. Well, it was great talking to you. Thank you. And for everyone's listening, you are your own artist. Mm. Fail big. 
Feel big, dream bigger, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Full Spirals was produced by Boom Arts in Appleton, Wisconsin. Theme music by Helen Avakian. Additional music provided by Beth Kelly. Production assistance by Jeff Ryan. If you liked what you heard today, please rate, review, and share Full Spirals. Bring your friends and your fam along for the ride on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite listening platform, because we really are all in this together. Till next time, take care.